Romans chapter 6. Talking about a proper distinction, it is vital to distinguish justification and sanctification. Because justification just simply is the work of God alone. Declaring us to be righteous. And he chose us. And um, that's something that happened. We're not even conscious of it. But we may be conscious of it within a split second of when the Lord does it, you know. And we're conscious of all the things in our, our lives leading up to it. That's why we give our testimonies here at church to talk about how the Lord is working in our life. And then He comes. Sanctification, well, you can almost call it, I almost hate to do it because God's on the throne and He's in control, but you can almost call it a cooperative effort because we participate in the sanctification process except, except, and this is a big except, we don't participate in the glorification process which flows from sanctification. That's the work of God alone. So as we define these terms and as we look and see how the Bible talks about them, um, in, an error in any one of them becomes uh, really problematic or even spiritually deadly. In the Battle of the Reformation, the, the, the cry was justification by faith alone. Absolutely. Now they could have expanded that a little bit more because they meant Christ as the object of faith alone. Having faith uh, isn't anything unless you have it, faith in the proper object. So it's justification by faith in Christ alone. And this cuts through all the rituals, cuts through all the heresies, cuts through things like indulgences. Uh, I was running across indulgences thinking about it this week, so I, I took a, a rabbit trail to, to study indulgences a little bit, having never been a Catholic myself. And, and um, knowing what I know from history about indulgences, and then knowing that fairly recently um, the Pope had granted in some indulgences under certain circumstances that you could do. And I realized, well, indulgences are still around. Hmm, that was interesting. So I went to some Catholic websites, figured go to the source, uh, those that are going to tell us what they believe, and what they believed about indulgences. And what I found um, overall is uh, most, um, all of the, I went about three or four. The Catholic websites were uh, apologetic about the way adult indulgences have been misused over the years. And um, the things that have been done, and the things that have been said, and the things that helped to spark the Reformation that made Martin Luther so angry. Uh, they agreed that these were, were unacceptable, but they do not deny, and still do not deny, a treasury of merit. And it's a very simple concept, their treasury of merit. Um, you know, you take uh, all the works of the Lord, and, and they will say it this way, all the works of the Lord Jesus Christ are put into this treasury of merit that you can draw from. Okay. But that's not all. Uh, they'll say, and that was enough. It's sufficient. It's enough for, for everything. The treasury of merit can never be empty because of the work of Christ. But there's also the work of Mary in there. And that's really important too. And then there's the work of all the saints that act actually as they put up at colloquial in my own way. The saints that have lived such a righteous life, they have more righteousness than they need. And so that gets put into the treasury of merit too. And so now you've got this treasury of merit that the church holds and can give indulgences from. 
Okay. And indulgences aren't always um, uh, certain this or that or that. There's, indulgences usually are to a certain point. And of course the ridiculous one was uh, to drop a coin in and a soul flees from purgatory. They said, okay, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous too. They didn't agree with Tetzel on that. Well, we don't believe in indulgences at all. Absolutely not. You know, it's the concept of in Christ that is vital to understanding justification and sanctification. In Christ is the key concept, and the very state of being in Christ is not our works, but uh, his work for us. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Before we go to, before we go to Romans, uh, let's go here. And uh, I think what we hope to see is this concept of in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, same author as the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul. Verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, meaning born of nobility or noble birth, are called but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his sight. So there's the first thing that we see about that. But, verse 30, but in him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So it's all of God. It's all of Him. Even our sanctification needs to be constantly looking to Him, and our sanctification will end in glorification which again is all of his work. And so, but here's why I'm, I'm going to caution us. Some have said that, um, and it does say Christ is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so some have erred by saying, well, then all we can do is just do nothing. Do nothing, you know? And that actually, I, I was part of a movement like that for uh, about a year, uh, the, the Deeper Life Movement which uh, basically says, let go, let God. You know, anything you try to do is going to be a sin. You know, you've got to crucify yourself, you know, and this is the terminology they use. And, and the illustration that they love to use is uh, imagine yourself on a cross. Okay, and uh, you can't put yourself on a cross, which is very true. So they say, well, you know, so you could take your hand, you could nail yourself to that, but now you can't nail yourself to the other side. So there's nothing you can do. And yet I read the Bible, and it tells me there's many things I need to do. <laughs> there's things that I must do. And uh, we'll see that as we go through, of course. And then when we get to Romans chapter 7, we'll see there's many things that I do that I ought not to do, and even grieve my own heart as I do them. So that's what we're talking about here. So let's go back to Romans 6 now. Romans chapter 6, <coughs> quick review. Well, I'll just read verses one through, f one through five here. 
Um, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of, God, of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that says it very well. And that actually becomes um, a heading for the next chapter too, chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're going to see this over and over again. We've died to sin. We live to Christ. And, it, uh, and of course baptism was the illustration that was used. When Christ died, we died. When he was buried, we figuratively went under the waves, were buried. When he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead, rose from the waves to walk in newness of life. And uh, baptism is a great illustration. It's a means of grace. Christian, every Christian should be baptized. If you're a Christian and you have not been baptized, uh, we would love to talk to you and, and find out why. Because you should be. Every Christian should be baptized. It's what uh, we do, but we don't get baptized to be saved. We are baptized because we are saved. But in our baptism, we identify with Christ. And so the next message we had after baptism was union with Christ, which is what baptism is all about, you know, and spiritual baptism is all about. Nobody will ever gain heaven that's not died with Christ. No one will ever gain heaven that hasn't been buried with Christ. No one will ever gain heaven that's not risen with him. We're talking about the work of Christ imputed to us. And baptism is a picture of spiritual baptism, which is regeneration. So it's either his righteousness or a righteousness of our own. And uh, we need what theologians call an alien baptism. Now, most of you have heard that term. Other of you start thinking about outer space or something like that. <laughs> no. Alien baptism simply means a baptism or alien righteousness. Alien righteousness simply means a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. That's what we're talking about. That's Christ's righteousness. And we must have that. Because every person's either in Adam, as chapter 5 talked about, or in Christ. In Adam, all die. There's no escape. In Christ, all shall remain alive. That's the only escape. Now, how does this act actually work for us? Okay, So how does this practically work out in our lives? What dead to sin does not mean. Dead to sin means that, doesn't mean that we're not tempted. We can be tempted. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be vigilant against the wiles of the devil. We must be. It doesn't mean we've reached a state of perfection where we no longer sin. And some will go so far as to say that the Christian even cannot sin. And the reason they say that is they, they actually have an over-realized theology that says, even when you sinned, you didn't really sin, because that was already paid for. That was already taken care of at the cross. This is how we can confuse justification and sanctification. They need to be kept separate, you know. Um, so, and there's a lot of errors that can be found there. But an over-realized eschatology says, since all my sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for, which is true, I can consider myself perfect no matter what I do. 
and in theological terms, that's called antinomianism. Antinomianism, which says it just doesn't matter. It's a truth taken to an untruth. All of our sins have been paid for by Christ. He took them all upon himself. But that's no excuse or license to sin. And Paul lets you know that in the first two verses of chapter 6. So what does dead to sin mean? Now you might remember the extended illustration, and it'll use it again, so I'll just shorten the extended illustration from last week. But there was a slave, he was a slave to sin, he was born a slave, and it was impossible for him to redeem himself. He'd even try, but whenever he tried, he would fail. And the master may even beat him worse. The master would just beat him as he tried to escape. He lived a miserable life of bondage. That's lost man. But then a great king, out of mercy, devised a way to free the slave from the tyrannical master. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Romans, Romans 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. The way devised by this great, powerful, merciful king was to have the slave crucified, and now that he was dead, the master had no control over him, then he raised him to life. And now he became a slave of his new master. A master who loved him. A master who cared for him. A master who, even though he really was a slave, didn't call him a slave, called him a friend and a brother and a son. So that's, the illustration breaks down, it's true. Yeah, every human illustration is gonna break down. But this is the idea of dying to sin and living to Christ. It's a new life. So we have a new life. We have a new master. We no longer live as slaves in the realm of sin. We now live for Christ. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Now, really, differing English translations can be confusing. One of the reasons that happened, we, you know, it's not a bad practice to, to read the Bible in, in various translations, especially if you don't know the original languages. It, it can be somewhat dangerous, but it, if you're using good, good translations, it, it isn't so much. And, and something like Bible Gateway can help you because you can click on a verse and then you can hit a thing and you can see that verse translated maybe 30 different ways and read on down. It can be very helpful. It's on your computer, of course. So, you know, that's things that didn't exist before. Um, I find myself not going to that big old thick Strong's Concordance that, uh, that I used for many, many years when you have something at your fingertips that you can call up quickly like that. Well, differing English translations can be confusing. It's true. So, in, you know, you think about Hebrew, Hebrew has about a thousand main root words. It's, it's more, but there's about a thousand really key words. And, and Greek has about 5,000 key words, even though there's some that aren't counted in that because they only occur like once or something like that. Um, English has at least 50,000 key words and 75,000 that are 
in somewhat regular usage. It's kind of amazing. And, uh, you know, so we really need to be careful and we need to understand that a translation is a translation. It just is, you know. Uh, one of the errors that does exist, and uh, there is nothing wrong with the good old King James Bible, which has stood for years and been, has been a bulwark and been used to, to actually not just transform uh, spiritually men and women and show them the way of grace. It, it's been used uh, to actually give us great heights of English language. To, to powerful translation, wonderful translation. But it's just a translation, you know. And so it cannot perfectly convey everything. And it's not even the fault of the translation. Words change. Meanings change. Things are, are said differently. Some things come and some things go. Well, the only reason I bring that up is not to bash on the King James Bible, because I love the King James Bible. I, I was raised on it. I've read it many, many times. But, um, you know, the fact is, you can go overboard. I did that too. I was <laughs> part of that movement too. So, uh, you know, uh, where you believe the King James Bible is inspired. And if it doesn't say it exactly the way the King James Bible says it, it's a heretical Bible. Uh, no, no, yeah. It's, it's out there. It is far more popular today than it was when I was part of that movement. Far more popular. So, so just be aware of that. Don't throw away your King James Bible. The King James Bible is a wonderful translation. Please, but, but don't think that others are necessarily evil, although some of them aren't very good. Okay. Let me name a few that you can be safe with. Uh, you can be safe with the New King James Bible, excellent translation. ESV, excellent translation. Uh, though that, those are really two of my favorites right there. Uh, but the New American Standard Bible, T don't tell Mike I said this, as clunky as it can be. <laughs> no, that would be like that. They, they were trying to be as literal as possible, and they do a good job, excellent job. New American Standard Bible, a good Bible too. Just uh, stay away from the newest ones, uh, which have worked really hard to be gender neutral and, and uh, just, yeah, just no need for that. No need for that, you know. And then um, even the NIV. I'm, I'm taking up the NIV, NIV this year uh, for my devotional reading. Enjoying it. Got problems. It's a little dynamic equivalence. Gets a little too paraphrasy at times. Usually takes a conservative twist, which is good. But uh, that's just uh, a little aside there. And as you may have realized, that wasn't in my notes. So there you go. <laughs> so anyway, the great promise for the Christian. Uh, verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ Jesus the Lord was made a real man. And he really died. Now, we know that he's the God-man. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that he really died. And the fact that he really rose. And the fact that he will never die again. He doesn't have to die again because he's already completed what he set out to do. 
He bought salvation for us. So we're cleared if we're in Christ. We're not guilty if we're in Christ. The penalty of sin has been paid by Christ. Yeah, physically we will die if the Lord doesn't return. This is true, physically we will die, but we will be raised up never to die again, okay? And so in that way, he was made like his brothers. And even though, you know, we've been justified, we must not excuse our sin and we must refuse to take it seriously. About, um, oh, 20 years ago or so, uh, we had a, a number of people who, who left the church over the idea that uh, the Christian really couldn't sin. And a, a few of them went so far, I'll, I'll give you an illustration, this really happened, you know. Uh, driving down the road, this one guy that believed that, he was sitting in the passenger side, and uh, he started um, yelling and screaming at cars as they were going by, and cursing at them, and calling them names, and you go, what in the world? Only a crazy man would do that. He was trying to prove that it didn't matter what he did. He couldn't sin. Yeah. Now, that's over-realized eschatology. That's why I'm talking about this. It's important to me. You know? That is not what we teach, and that is not what we believe. We believe that we must not sin, and then we accept the fact that we do sin. Okay? But we don't say, oh, I sin. Sin, I don't care. No. It's important. It's vital that we live for the Lord. John Murray says, a believer cannot live in sin. If a man lives in sin, he's not a believer. If we view sin as a realm or a sphere, then a believer no longer lives in that realm or sphere. And Murray's doing a good job here. Tell us two different things. You know, uh, we cannot live in that realm or sphere of sin because we were rescued from that, you know. So a professed believer living as a pagan, well, if he's in the church and he refuses to repent of the sinful life that he's living, needs to be disciplined from the church. Okay? Church discipline exists for that reason. We hold each other accountable. Okay? We hold each other accountable. We're here to help each other. And when we say, and in fact, Brother Pat, that, that passage that you read had church discipline in it, you know. And um, as you read that, I was thinking, I forgot I had church discipline in my notes, actually. Uh, because I read that, oh, I wish I could say this. Now I get to say it, you know. So you go to him. And you go to him in love. And you try to help him or her. Okay? I didn't have to say or her. You knew that. But you go to them. And you work it out. And you don't have to just go once. You know, some people say, well, I'll go once. It doesn't work. No, you can go and you can repeat and you can talk, you can work it out. A lot of times you'll realize that you had a misunderstanding or maybe they'll realize they were wrong. You know, there's a lot of things that can be done one-on-one -on -one without getting other people involved. That's usually the best way to handle things and things, then they're done, you know. But that doesn't work. Then you take one or two with you and try the same process so that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word can be established. And that doesn't work. They tell it to the church, and he becomes like a heathen and a publican. Now, what does that mean? He becomes like a heathen and a publican. Does it mean you're going to beat him? Mean you're going to slap him in the face? Does it mean you're going to call him names? Mean you're going to talk bad about him every chance you get? Or let's suppose he owns the local uh, a gas station in your locality, 
And while he was a member of your church, you always um, went to that gas station. But now you're going to show him. You'll never go to that gas station again. You're going to buy an electric car, right? <laughs> no, no, no. You'll never go to that gas station again because you're going to punish him. A heathen and a tax collector. That means treat him as one on the outside. That's, the, that's what it means. It doesn't mean hurt him. It doesn't mean punish him. It doesn't even mean hate him. You know, that means treat him as an outsider because by church discipline, the church is saying, as best we can tell, this person is not a Christian. So they cannot be part of this church. But it's in the hand of the Lord. And our prayer is always, Lord, bring them back. Lord, bring them back. It's not, let's hate them. You pray for heathens. You pray for tax collectors. You pray for those that have been disciplined. But they do need to be disciplined. So there you go. Oh, well. Oh, that wasn't in my notes. <laughs> but, but you spurred me there. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I may not get quite as far as I planned, or I probably will, but then go a little deeper next time. Ephesians chapter 2. And you have an outline there, so you can see where we're going with this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you, and then inserted here, and whenever you see in our King James Version, or in the New King James Version, something that um, is in italics, it means that it's not in the original, but it helps to understand it a little bit better. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So we're talking about our lost condition, and we're talking about the ramifications of being in Adam and dead to God. Verse 3, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others were made of the same stuff. And we even come out of the same stock. We are children of Adam by physical birth. But then there's the great deliverance, the freeing of the slave. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and then by grace you have been saved. And raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast and there is justification. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And there's sanctification. You know, there it is. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, quoted all the time, it's very good. Don't forget Ephesians 10. You know, don't forget 2, 10. God not only ordains our freedom from sin, God ordains our life and service to him in this present world. So we see justification leading to sanctification in this present life. And that's verses Romans 6 
11 through 14. Let's go there. Romans 6, 11 through 14. As you turn there, let's remember that no man has two masters. You can't have two masters. The Lord Jesus Christ told us you can't have two masters. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then he illustrates that with, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't. So, verse 11. Likewise you also reckon or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Okay. This whole passage is going to talk about law. And, uh, you know, by the law is the knowledge of sin, is what it amounts to. But we're going to see the, the law is not bad. The law is not wicked. The law is the law. The law is the law. But um, we must not live under the dominion of sin. So first of all, we need to remember that our old master is simply that. Our old master. Reckon yourself. Consider yourself uh, to be uh, dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. You know, uh, This reckoning is not some mystical activity uh, of living a deeper life. It's reminding ourselves that we're in Christ constantly. It's His righteousness that makes the difference, and it's His work that brings peace with God. Another way to put it is something that we like to say around here too, is Christians need the gospel too. We do. Christians need the gospel too. We need to consider what God has done for us. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves, and we need to hear the gospel preached to us I cannot make God love me any more by my obedience. He loves me just as much as he loves the Lord Jesus Christ because I'm in Christ. That's the amazing thing. The amazing thing. I must realize every spiritual benefit that I have is 100% because of Jesus Christ and 0% of me. You think, well, but, but God must be somewhat impressed with my sacrificial giving, and God must be somewhat impressed with my time that I give, and God must be somewhat impressed with my efforts that I expend. Well, Christians do feel that way. They do. And we need to not think that way, but it's natural. It's not good, but it's natural. And then churches, I'm, I'm going to say something very profound here, I believe. Something that is really part of our philosophy here at Sovereign Grace. Churches take this natural desire of people to obey God and drive people to physical and spiritual exhaustion in their attempt to make God happy. You know, there's that natural ability that we want to do. We want to do, we want to do, and, and that's good. But it shouldn't be exploited, you know, in that way. It's, it, it's a misuse of the people. 
really believe that. So we want you to minister. We want you to help. We want you to, to be an active part of the ministry. But uh, we don't want you neglecting your family as you do that. We don't want you neglecting your own spiritual life. We don't want you so spiritually exhausted or physically exhausted that uh, you have no spiritual good. And you'll burn out and you'll be gone. That's what will happen. So, so we try to make sure that doesn't happen. And, uh, and some of you, I know, I've told you sitting in the pew there, and I've told you, um, be careful. You know, we love what you're doing. You know, but be careful because you can burn yourself out if you're not careful. You know, we're in this for the long run. That's what we want. In it for the long run on this path to heaven. Matthew 7, and 23 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have not cast out, or have cast out demons? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I'll profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. A Christian has one master, a new master, and we can fight against sin. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. You can and you must say no. No, no sin, you have no claim over me. You are a usurper. You have no hold over me whatsoever. I will not give in, I refuse. And that's just an illustration of mortification of sin. We're gonna deal with that later in Romans. Mortification of sin is walking in holiness and it's practical godliness. But don't forget, the old master is still around. He's not your master, but he's still around, and he's still strong, and he knows our weaknesses, and each of us have plenty of weaknesses, and he loves to stumble us even though he can't send us to hell. We need to avoid sin like the plague, because that's what sin is. It's the plague of plagues. It's destructive to our souls. And you give in just a little, and soon you'll give in more. And soon you'll give in more. And soon you'll give in more, and soon you'll be so far down the road that you won't even recognize yourself. And sin is a terrible, terrible burden and taskmaster. But what did the Lord say about himself? Take my yoke upon you. The yoke ties two oxen together. It's, it's heavy. It is. But not Christ's. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Present yourselves as an instrument of righteousness to God. Christianity really isn't a religion of do this and do that. It's living for God as a living sacrifice for him. I'm, I'm going to conclude here by just saying this. I've been talking to Christians. We've got more to say, and uh, this passage has more to say. And it's going to continue on. Um, you know, one illustration. I, I should bring up one illustration. I, um, you know, talking about how we are dead to sin. You know. And Paul says this twice. He says this twice, Christian friend. He talks about um, a woman being bound to a husband as long as he lives. Okay. Now, we're not talking about divorce. We're not talking about any of that. We're just talking about the natural principle of what it is. A husband and wife, they're married. Okay, they're together. But the husband dies. 
in some cultures in the past, and it's illegal now, thankfully, but in some cultures, in the Hindu cultures, uh, the husband would die, and they'd make a big pyre to, to, to burn his body, to cremate him up. And then they'd take the widow and put her on his body and let it burn up. And she burned up with him. Can you imagine? It was usually done voluntarily. It was usually done voluntarily. And then it became, for a time, mandatory, and then it became voluntary again. Then it became illegal, and it had to be done in secret. You know, okay, it's just a horrible thing. And it certainly isn't a Christian thing. Look at right here in Romans 7, verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. Uh, more, even more is said in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me look and find it here. 1 Corinthians 7, I believe it's verse 30, yeah, verse 39. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. You can just listen if you didn't turn there. Um, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's just the way it is. And that's um, exactly right, you know. Um, it's used as an illustration. I, I would hope that, uh, uh, that we wouldn't be mis sinfully mistreating our wives. You know, that's, that's not the way it's going. He's talking about a marriage, a proper marriage, and then what happens? He dies, she's free to marry another. It's another illustration like the slave master illustration. So that's what we're talking about for Christians, but let me just talk to the lost for just a moment because I've been talking to Christians. If you're here without Christ, sin is your master. You're a slave to its lusts and its desires. You say, oh, wait a minute. I'm pretty moral. You don't know who you're talking to here. Uh, no, no, you're not moral. No, absolutely not. You may be someone that would be a good neighbor to live next to. You may be a very affable person and very nice and, and helpful and, and do good deeds. And all this is very, very true. But the fact of the matter is you're a slave to your lusts and desires. You're held captive by the devil. And the devil really isn't going to care all that much if you're a moral sinner as long as you're a sinner. As long as he's your master, good enough, right? Well, some have even dared to say, well, you don't know who you're talking to. I'm the master of my own fate and the captain of my own soul. So now we know <laughs> who we're talking to for that kind of an attitude. You need to bow before King Jesus, cry out like Saul of Damascus, Lord, what would you have me to do? You need to flee to Christ because if you don't flee to him now, it's likely that you never will flee to him. You say, Pastor Steve, how can you say that? What do you mean? I remember, I was saved at a very young age, but I remember thinking, well, I need to be saved, but I'm going to wait till the school year is over. Because I don't want to have to deal with my friends and let them know I'm a Christian. You know, such foolish thoughts of a child become the foolish thoughts of a teen, become the foolish thoughts of an adult. That there's always enough time. If you don't flee to him now, 
How likely is it that you ever will flee to him ever? Or put it another way, if you can reject him today, what makes you think that you'll come to him tomorrow? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're in a section of scripture that isn't the easiest to understand. We're trying to show it by illustrations, trying to be careful with your word, to go through it carefully. But it really just boils down to this. Repent, believe the gospel, turn to Christ, and now that you're in Christ, serve him. Do his will. Look to him often. Pray, read your Bible, worship together. Father, worship has been undervalued in this day. Worship has been turned into nothing more than maybe a show or just showing up. But Lord, we're to be worshipers. We're in Christ. We see the picture of those in heaven today, those around the throne today. What are they doing? They're worshiping. Lord, we need to be active worshipers. So help us towards that end. May Jesus Christ receive all the glory. Father, if anything good is ever to be done, it's all because of him. So we look to him, we trust him, and may Jesus Christ be praised. And if anyone here that does not know Christ as Savior, Father, would you do that first work in their heart and would give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.